Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 74, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. Tonight is a celebration of Gilead and of what we have achieved. We only wanted to make the world better. Better? Better never means better for everyone. I want to keep on living for her. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is just a fancy book club. We read a book and then we decide that we're going to talk about this book and we decide for you whether it is worthy of its reputation, whether it's required reading, whether we like it or not. And was this a revenge book? We'll find that out, too. So I am here because I did choose this quote-unquote revenge book for us, which is good, I think, thematically, for this particular book. So I am Stella, and I'm leading us through this Handmaid's Tale. And uh, unfortunately, I would probably have to be a handmaid um, due to my fertility. And this guy would, I guess, he'd either be a commander or a member of the eyes uh he is my friend maybe unless he's trying to turn me in for something tom panarese blessed be the fruit <laughs> may the lord open yes <laughs> well tom i mean before we what is it it's january so this is the first yeah. book that we're doing of the new year do you think i chose wrongly and we're just starting off 2020 
three. three. <laughs> I almost said four. 2023 on a strange note. It might seem that way, but like this is a great book for the dead of winter. <laughs> True. Like, and January really is the dead of winter. So, you know, um, I think last year we started with Twelfth Night. Oh, interesting. So, okay. So, uh, which yeah. Is, yeah, because we did Twelfth Night at the beginning of last year. I don't know what we started out with years past, but I only know that because I picked the book. Um, so this, no, I, you know, I, it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> but a completely different tone, you know, going from comedy yeah. to to this. Which there's dystopian speculative fiction, yes, or yes, you as, want to as, call it. as would uh, considers it, yes, yeah. And I don't think I laughed once in this particular uh, the second read through <laughs> that I did, but welcome, yeah, welcome to 2023. And I'm sure we're getting close to our 75th, which I'm sure will be special, and then. That'll be next episode, actually. It's crazy. I was trying to think of what the term was for 75th when it came to the Hunger Games, but I couldn't couldn't remember what the... Yeah, I can't remember. The quarter quell? Was that the quarter? Was that the quarter quell? It might have been. Because that was in... It would have been the second one. Catching Fire. That's the name of the second book. Yeah. So, So we're getting there. So maybe Tom has picked something that will be very vicious and violent and we'll decide whether we need to continue with this podcast or not. But until then, <laughs> yes, we have the handmaid's tale. And I did in fact choose this as revenge because just to rehash in case you didn't listen to the other episodes, Tom, for some reason has granted himself all of the special holidays and Christmas. Christmas, I think, you know, I could, whatever, whatever. But he also has Valentine's Day. And, you know, I had a good idea for a shipper book, and I'm counting on my fingers, and I find out that he has it. And he also had Halloween. So I don't know what sort of manipulation he did to get all the holidays this year, but he didn't. So I decided that I was going to punish him with a bad book. (laughs) And it was a joint punishment because I had read this before, and I didn't like it. So I guess now we'll find out. Well, we'll find out later whether we (laughs) like it or not. But what is your history? with The Handmaid's Tale. Um, this has been on my to-read list for a number of years. So um, on my Goodreads, you know, have-to-read list. And uh, I, I heard of it years ago, and I don't remember in what context I heard of it, to be completely honest with you, or when. But I heard about it before the uh, television mm-hmm. show premiered. I have never seen the television show. Um, I am looking forward to sitting down and watching it when I get the chance which might be in a while because I have a lot of other television to get through right now. But, um, but yeah, no, I've always wanted to read this for some reason. I was intimidated by it. Like I thought it was going to be like some really dense, hugely long read, like the fountainhead or something. I don't know. I don't know why I I was under the impression that was going to be like an incredibly long, dense read with like really small type or something. And it wasn't. So, yeah, so this is my first time reading it, even though I've been wanting to read this for a while. And this is my second time reading it. So this was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list. And 
probably uh, this was pre Goodreads, so it's probably been I would say a good ten years since I've first read this, and it's interesting okay. that you said it felt like a dense read because I recall having a pretty negative and visceral reaction to reading this. Not only I mm. think. I was disengaged from it. There was that was like also a time in my life where I think my you know if I'm to look back like my religion and my relationship with Christianity was a little more legalistic than it is now and so having that okay. and dealing with that subject matter in this way and the way that it's presented was really hard and I think I couldn't disassociate myself from the fact that it was fiction and it was like trying to also teach and also, I, I think, as you said, kind of this denseness, I felt like it, it wasn't an easy read either. But I think there was probably like a lot of psychological and emotional stuff getting into that. So it overall made for a very bad read. And I mm. remember also doing my speed reading, which once if I... I'm not engaged, but I'm like just trying to finish the book. I will speed read things and I can usually <laughs> still do well with details and, and keep things and remember them. So, for instance, like the most recent speed. Re well, actually, I'm speed reading something right now, um, which is Ithaca, which I, I just don't care for. But on this show, once I was going to say Salem's Lot, I don't know why I keep confusing those two. Pet Cemetery. I got to a certain point. And it, I was just like, just trying to finish it. And so I speed read, but I think that I managed very well on the discussion because I remembered all the, this, the salient points that I needed to make. So it was just, it was just a bad experience. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm finished with it. I crossed it off Roar Gilmore's reading list. The TV show comes out and I want nothing to do with that because obviously I, I've read yes, it and didn't, didn't like, like the book, the book, so why am I going to watch a TV show? And I have some friends that I go over and have dinner with them, maybe like once every month. And we alternate recommendations. Like I would bring a movie and we would watch it together and they would do something. And I think I had mm -hmm. brought over a suggestion like, let's watch a Gilmore Girls. And like the next one is like, have you seen Handmaid's Tale? Let's watch one episode. But they left me an out because I just wasn't too sure. And I even asked like, is there – and this was I think season two or three had – been going on and so this was season one episode one and i even asked like is there a rape in the first episode because of course even if i've forgotten other details you're not gonna forget what the actual like being a handmaid is and they're like no i don't yeah. think so and then there is a ceremony the first episode which is really shocking given I, I even have a question for how long the ceremony is actually delayed in the source material. And so I'm like, oh, my mm -hmm. gosh, here here we go. But for some reason, I have enjoyed the show. I'll be interested to talk with you, Tom, once you start watching it. And I use yeah. that enjoy loosely. I, I guess I find it engaging. I think that it is worthwhile. So kind of like the same terms I would use for Midsummer, because it's kind of hard to say like, I enjoy watching Midsummer, because you know, that's, that's kind of like some heavy material. Yeah, but that guy gets what's coming <laughs> to him in the end. <laughs> yeah, they don't spoil anything. But yes, yeah. And and that really annoying friend too. He he also kind of got, mm -hmm. got what's coming to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been engaged with that television series and 
thought maybe it's time to give this another shot because there are a couple novels like beloved i i did not like and i know that's on your list and so i feel like well at some point i'm gonna have to re-engage with that material maybe it'll be better and so here we are i'm re-engaging with this material i'm older my relationship and my ability to disassociate i think my like personal stuff with what's going on i think is a bit better so perhaps it's a different time in my life so we'll i'll i'll keep you on the edge of your seats as to whether or not I liked it but just know that I am a different Stella than I was mm. 10 years ago so it's it was an interesting experience rereading it and you read it practically in like two days didn't you I read it in a weekend yeah I, I read it um I started it I had to fly to Chicago the weekend before Thanksgiving for a funeral and um I read it on the plane in the airport because I was waiting for my parents plane to arrive and then while I had some downtime at the hotel and then finished it um, at O'Hare waiting for my plane to board. So, yeah, I, I basically read it in like two days. <laughs> yeah, I remember you texted me and said something like, I think you were talking, yeah, about your delay or whatever it was. And said, mm -hmm. I'm three quarters of the way through. And I thought, I haven't even started this. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had like, I my plane landed at like... Oh, seven thirty in the morning or something, and theirs didn't land until like twelve thirty or something. Like the, I had like four, a good three or four hours in the airport waiting for my parents' plane to to land because we all they all they rented the car, and I was going with them, so I was just like, and then I had two hours between flights, and they got to the airport, and so I had like two or three hours too, so I had all this time in, in O'Hare. Yeah, and O'Hare that I was just like, I'm just gonna sit here and read a book in the in the gate. So and you were it was able cool. to do it. Yeah. Uh, yes, and what a strange image you you must have made as a as a man reading The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> well, we are going to get to The Handmaid's Tale, but first, of course, we do need to talk about Margaret Atwood her, herself. And I did find it interesting that she's born in Canada. If only thinking about. Canada's relationship I think it d didn't really get to this in the book but in the tv show it's like a big it's a big thing and I wonder if they kind of did that purposefully but you know Canada is mm -hmm. it seems to be the place where people want to go when the U.S. or in this case Gilead is not doing <laughs> what we want them to do it's like what we should go to Canada I wonder if that comes about at least in Atwood writing this back in the early 80s because in the 1960s, there were a number of people who fled to Canada from the United States to uh, dodge the okay. draft. So I, maybe I'm wondering yeah. that's one of the that that's one of the reasons that she uh, she had that. Yeah. Aside from the fact that it's a uh, our, our neighbor, neighbor to, the, to north. the north. Yeah, absolutely. There was a time we could get there without a passport. I remember crossing mm. the border frequently when I yeah. lived in upstate New York, and now you can't do it. Yeah. Okay, well, she was born in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada in 1939. She is the second of three children of Margaret Dorothy, a former dietitian and nutritionist, and Carl Edmund Atwood, an entomologist. Due to her father's ongoing research in forest entomology, Atwood spent much of her childhood in the backwoods of northern Quebec and traveling back and forth between Ottawa, Salt, St. Marie, and Toronto. She, or Toronto, is actually how they like to, to, to be pronounced. She did not attend school full-time until she was in grade 8. She became a voracious reader of literature 
literature, Dale Pocket Mysteries, Grimm's Fairy Tales, Canadian Animal Stories, and comic books. She attended Leaside High School in Leaside, Toronto, and graduated in 1957. Edward began writing at the age of six and realized she wanted to write professionally when she was 16. In 1957, she began studying at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where she published poems and articles in Acta Victoriana the College Literary Journal. Her professors included Jay McPherson and Northrop Fry. She graduated in 1961 with the Bachelor of Arts in English, honors, and a minor in philosophy and French. In late 1961, after winning the E.J. Pratt Medal for her privately printed book of poems, Double Persephone, she began graduate studies at Harvard's Radcliffe College with a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. She obtained a master's degree from Radcliffe in 62 and pursued further graduate studies at Harvard University for two years, but did not finish her dissertation, The English Metaphysical Romance. She has taught at the University of British Columbia, Sir George Williams University in Montreal, the University of Alberta, York University in Toronto, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Wow, that's a, a, a stark. That's a long <laughs> I know a stark way change from where she was. Where she was a visiting MFA chair, and New York University, where she was Berg Professor of English. And that all comes from Lit Lovers, which I do like that website. This comes from Wikipedia. Atwood's first novel, The Edible Woman, was published in 1969. As a social satire of North American consumerism, many critics have often cited the novel as an early example of the feminist concerns found in many of Atwood's works. Atwood also published three novels during this time, Surfacing in 72, Lady Oracle in 76, and Life Before Man in 79, which was a finalist for the Governor General's Award. Surfacing, Lady Oracle, and Life Before Man, like The Edible Woman, explore identity and social constructions of gender as they relate to topics such as nationhood and sexual politics. And I want to bring some of that in, just like tie it into what we see with The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale, of course, was published in 1985. It received the first C. Clark Award in 87, which is given for the best science fiction novel that was first published in the United Kingdom during the previous year. It was also nominated for the 1986 Nebula Award and the 1987 Prometheus Award, both science fiction awards. Atwood was at one time offended at the suggestion that The Handmaid's Tale or Orcs and Crake, which I also read and didn't like, were science fiction, <laughs> insisting to the UK's Guardian that they were speculative fiction, as Tom said. She says, quote, science fiction has monsters and spaceships. Speculative fiction could really happen. She told the Book of the Month Club, quote, Orcs and Crake is a speculative fiction, not a science fiction proper. It contains no intergalactic space travel, no teleportation, no Martians. She clarified her meaning on the difference between speculative and science fiction, admitting the others use the terms interchangeably. Quote, for me, the science fiction label belongs on books with things in them that we can't yet do. Speculative fiction means a work that employs the means already to hand and that takes place on planet Earth, end quote. She said that science fiction narratives give a writer the ability to explore themes in ways that realistic fiction cannot. As she has repeatedly noted, quote, there's a precedent in real life for everything in the book. This was specifically about The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. I decided not to put anything in that somebody somewhere hadn't already done, end quote. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that kind of leads us up to uh, just The Handmaid's Tale in particular. Any other... Well, it's just this... The point that she's making about speculative fiction is really interesting, and I, I tend to agree with it. I was just thinking about um, older dystopian pieces, uh, specifically uh, Fahrenheit 451, which when Brad, Ray Bradbury wrote it in the early 1950s, I believe, or 1960 or whenever it was written, a lot of the science things, the technology was futuristic. But mm-hmm. now a significant part of that book has some of the technology actually exists and so as a science fiction novel that is about a possible future ages and believe it or not society actually catches up to some of the futuristic things does it become a speculative piece yeah <laughs> like fahrenheit yeah. 451 can, can, can it change genres because of the passage of time and how society has progressed mm-hmm. as a result that's just a it's, a it's a question to ponder um i i understand what she's saying though with with that it's you know it's not 2001 a space odyssey so to speak right you know yeah well it's crazy because the Black Mirror. I don't know if you've ever seen that. A couple show of episodes, on yeah. Netflix. Okay, it's interesting because the creator, of course, he leans in, I think, to science fiction, mm-hmm. but he also knows that a lot of these things could, in fact, happen. And I and I think that's like the scariness of it and uh, the danger is that it's just like this close mm-hmm. to realism that it makes you nervous, though he might consider it it's science fiction. So it's interesting. I feel like they could be used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And you're right that, yeah, at a certain point, something has changed from science fiction to yeah. And and Rod Serling was doing that with the Twilight Zone, too, right? Because there's a lot of Twilight Zone that is purely speculative, but then there's also Mm -hmm. a lot of Twilight Zone that science fiction kind of borders on horror as well. So, yeah, yeah, so it's the intermixing of of the genre and subgenre here totally, totally makes sense. All right, I'll let you get to your summary. Sure, yeah. So I'm going to now talk about this actual book. Thank you to SparkNotes for providing this plot synopsis. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to just trying to make it through life. And luckily, my grad semester just ended. So I know Tom generally writes his synopses by hand. I'm so proud of him. (laughs) But I I just can't do it, folks. I just can't do it. So this is The Handmaid's Tale. Okay, so of Fred is a handmaid in the Republic of Gilead, a totalitarian and theocratic state that has replaced the United States of America. Because of dangerously low reproduction rates, handmaids are assigned to bear children for elite couples that have trouble conceiving. Of Fred serves the commander and his wife, Serena Joy, a former gospel singer and advocate for, quote, traditional values. Of Fred is not the narrator's real name. Handmaid names consist of the word of followed by the name of the handmaid's commander. Every month when Ofred is at the right point in her menstrual cycle, she must have ritualized sex with the commander while Serena sits behind her holding her hands. Ofred's freedom, like the freedom of all women, is completely restricted. She can leave the house only on shopping trips, the door to her room cannot be completely shut, and the eyes, Gilead's secret police force, watch her every public move. As Afred tells the story of her daily life, she frequently slips into flashbacks, from which the reader can reconstruct the events leading up to the beginning of the novel. In the old world before Gilead, Afred had an affair with Luke, a married man. 
Luke divorced his wife and married a Fred, and they had a child together. Of Fred's mother was a single mother and feminist activist. Of Fred's best friend, Moira, was fiercely independent. The architects of Gilead began their rise to power in the age of readily available pornography, prostitution, and violence against women, when pollution and chemical spills led to declining fertility rates. Using the military, they assassinated the president and members of Congress and launched a coup, claiming that they were taking power temporarily. They cracked down on women's rights, forbidding women to hold property or jobs. Of Fred and Luke took their daughter and attempted to flee across the border into Canada, but they were caught and separated from one another, and of Fred has seen neither her husband nor her daughter since. She has seen a photograph of her daughter once, but that's it. After her capture of Fred's, marriage was voided because Luke had been divorced, and she was sent to the Rachel and Leah Re-Education Center, called the Red Center by its inhabitants. At the center, women were indoctrinated into Gilead's ideology in preparation for becoming handmaids. Aunt Lydia supervised the women, giving speeches extolling Gilead's beliefs that women should be subservient to men and solely concerned with bearing children. Aunt Lydia also argued that such a social order ultimately offers women more respect and safety than the old pre-Gilead society offered them. Moira is brought to the Red Center, but she escapes, and Afred does not know what becomes of her. Once Afred is assigned to the commander's house, her life settles into a restrictive routine. She takes shopping trips with of Glenn, another handmaid, and they visit the wall outside what used to be Harvard University, where the bodies of rebels hang. She must visit the doctor frequently to be checked for disease and other complications, and she must endure the quote-unquote ceremony in which the commander reads to the household from the Bible, then goes to the bedroom where Serena and Ofred wait for him and has sex with Ofred. The first break from her routine occurs when she visits the doctor and he offers to have sex with her to get her pregnant, suggesting that her commander is probably infertile. She refuses. The doctor makes her uneasy, but his proposition is too risky. She could be sent away if caught. After a ceremony, the commander sends his gardener and chauffeur... Gardener? I don't think I... Because Serena joined us a gardening. But anyways, the commander sends his chauffeur Nick to ask Ofred to come see him in his study the following night. She begins visiting him regularly. They play Scrabble, which is forbidden since women are not allowed to read, and he lets her look at old magazines like Vogue. At the end of these secret meetings, he asks her to kiss him, and I think the quote is, kiss him like she means it. During one of their shopping trips, of Glenn reveals to Afred that she is a member of May Day, an underground organization dedicated to overthrowing Gilead. Meanwhile, Afred begins to find that the ceremony feels different and less impersonal now that she knows the commander. Their nighttime conversations begin to touch on the new order that the commander and his fellow leaders have created in Gilead. When Afred admits how unhappy she is, the commander remarks, quote, You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. After some time has gone by without a Fred becoming pregnant, I think they're posted for two years, and then if not, they have to move on. Serena suggests that Ofred have sex with Nick secretly and pass it, if she gets pregnant, and pass the child off as the commander's. Serena promises to bring Ofred a picture of her daughter if she sleeps with Nick, and Ofred realizes with horror that Serena has always known where her daughter was. The same night that Ofred is to sleep with Nick, the commander secretly takes her out to a club called Jezebel's, where the commanders mingle with prostitutes. 
Fred sees Moira working there. The two women meet in a bathroom, and Fred learns that Moira was captured just before she crossed the border. She chose life in Jezebel's over being sent to the colonies, where most political prisoners and others who pose a threat to Gilead are sent, like nuns. After that night at Jezebel's, Fred says she never sees Moira again. The commander takes a friend upstairs after a few hours, and they have sex in what used to be a hotel room. She tries to feign passion. Soon after, a friend returns from Jezebel's late at night. Serena arrives and tells a friend to go to Nick's room. A friend and Nick have sex. Soon they begin to sleep together frequently without anyone's knowledge. A friend becomes caught up in the affair and ignores of Glenn's request that she gather information from the commander for May Day. One day, all the handmaids take part in a group execution of a supposed rapist supervised by Aunt Lydia. Of Glenn strikes the first blow. Later, she tells of Fred that the so-called rapist was a member of May Day and that she had him to put him out of his misery. Shortly thereafter, of Fred goes out shopping and a new of Glenn meets her. This new woman is not part of May Day and she tells of Fred that the old of Glenn hanged herself when she saw the secret police coming for her. At home, Serena has found out about of Fred's trip to Jezebel's and she sends her to her room, promising punishment. Of Fred waits there and she sees a black van from the eyes approach. Then Nick comes in and tells her that the eyes are really Mayday members who have come to save her. Of Fred leads with them at, over the commander's futile objections on her way either to prison or to freedom. She does not know which. The novel closes within that because that's like the novel proper, I would say. But the the there's a couple pages after that, and the novel closes with an epilogue from twenty one ninety after Gilead has fallen, written in the form of a lecture given by Professor P Pixioto, I don't know, P P Pi, <laughs> I don't know. He explains the formation and customs of Gilead in objective analytical language. He discusses the significance of a Fred's story, which has been found on cassette tapes in Bangor, Maine. And this professor suggests that Nick arranged a Fred's escape, but that her fate after that is unknown. She could have escaped to Canada or England, or she could have been recaptured. Okay. So that is the uplifting, jovial tale known as The Handmaid's Tale. It seems, it's interesting because when you read it, you recognize, and I think this is true of another book that we did, but I can't remember what it was. You like see all this happening, but because it's it takes you a while to get through everything, it doesn't really fall upon you. It comes in waves of like, oh, this is really bad, mm -hmm. but it's in waves. But when it comes out like this in a plot synopsis and you're just like hit hit yeah hit in you know five to ten minutes you're like wow that's actually really bad <laughs> well especially since the narrative jumps around quite a bit the, yes the it does yeah which i certainly have a question mm -hmm. about so but i guess the first question <laughs> of course is tom did you like the handmaid's Tale? i really liked whoa this tom uh, you was... really I don't think I would have read it in two days if I wasn't like totally sucked into it. And um, once I realized how, you know, it seemed dense and then I was into it, I was like, I, was just, I kept going and kept going. It was really, really engaged. I think the only thing that I found a little bit um, tough was, was some of the time jumping around yeah. because especially when she would be jumping back and forth between time at the red center and time with the commander, because there doesn't seem to be, because she's being oppressed in both of them. So there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between the two. So sometimes it, and because it was this almost, almost a stream of consciousness 
sort of narrative, you know, because it's a it is a testimony of sorts that it, it it was a little hard to follow in places. But no, I really really liked it, and um and you know what, it was one of the few pieces of dystopian lit that I've read where the fall of society actually is shown and the main character was old enough to be fully adult when it happened because you know we read uh uh station 11 for instance right and and the one of the main characters a couple of the main characters who remember it were adults but you also had uh somebody who was a child at the time and and there's like uh world war z is is one example but like you know um there's winston has memories of the old society back in 1984, but he was a child. Um, Montag has no memories of, of the prior society and, and Faber does and stuff. So it's, it's, this is a main character and we see, we see her go through the fall of society. So that was like really fascinating to me. And then, and then everything that's going on so much so that now I'm only about 12 pages in, but um, something you, I don't think you mentioned in your uh, Atwood bio, there's a follow up to this mm-hmm. oh i did forgot to talk called, about testaments called yeah. the the testaments mm-hmm. and um i just literally just started reading it yesterday and i'm only about 12 pages in so um i can't tell you whether or not it's good okay i <laughs> did I literally just started okay i saw i had to cover class and bring some students to a library and yeah. i saw that they had testaments, and I read the mm-hmm. inside cover because initially I wasn't interested at all. And yeah. I think two characters we don't know, but one of uh-huh. them, like the inside cover, says something about like a shocking person leadership. It's not Aunt Lydia, mm-hmm. is it? I don't know. I, okay, honestly, not, like like I said, I'm 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 there, and the the first testament, so to speak, is somebody who. Um, She's just talking about being raised in Gilead and everything and and stuff. So, but I was saving reading it for after our discussion because I wanted to make sure that I was recalling the Handmaid's Tale. Sure, yeah. You know, like so I didn't want it. Yeah, I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want to read too far. So I, I, but I, I finished the book that I had been reading. I was like, well. Starting a day earlier than I intended is not going to be too bad, and really, I, I yeah. So yes, but yeah. Well, it's funny you're you're starting testaments, and I just got out of the library. Backlash: the undeclared war against American women. So um, and that, <laughs> I, that I think is from maybe the 80s or 90s. So, but mm. but I had watched a YouTube video, and someone had mentioned. I was like, that seems oh, interesting. interesting. I mean, that's going to be dense. It's very thick. Mm-hmm. I have a follow up question before I give my whether I liked it or not would it have been okay had you not had a character that experienced pre you know USA the coup the decline of women's rights and then full-on Gilead mm, that's a good question which I guess technically you're reading right now testaments because I think yeah but one, one's a handmaid one's a commander's daughter that have already like grown up in in Gilead yeah, but I, I mean would it have been completely different if if June slash of Fred just had no awareness it would have been different, but I think it still would have been really interesting on the scale of something like Orwell or Bradbury's works, um, because the concept of Gilead is really interesting. And I would imagine that over the course of the book at some point, because, you know, it, it Atwood borrows from other um types of this work this genre and she has some of the the um, conventions of the genre in here and one of the conventions of this dystopian literature genre is that 
the the protagonist has their eyes opened at one point or another, and um, it would have been either the commander or somebody from Mayday or something explaining to her how things came about mm-hmm. or her picking it up in bits and pieces as opposed to the bits and pieces of memory. So it would have been a different approach yeah. that was a little more conventional to this subgenre. Actually, that's I think I actually really like the fact that she was an adult and we're only a few years into Gilead, because I think she said that it's been what has it been a decade at this point that since Gilead um, came to be or are we even it might be because I remember her envisioning what Luke looked like and yeah so older so I think he might yeah but we're not talking like an entire generation yet in fact that's a point that gets brought up by the ants etc the idea that and I think it's one of our questions the idea that these this generation of handmaids has it harder than any of the future ones because they're the ones who remember. Right. But the further down you go, and that's the thing, the further the further you go, the easier it does to come, become to control the populace because you can kill the or the other people the or the memory of the before time dies off. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, and I think this is her second posting, so we can at least assume like maybe three years of that, and then however okay. long the being in the red center. Yeah. But then, yeah, you've you've got the before they decided to flee and all of that. Yeah. And how old? So her let's do- let's well, her daughter too. You could always yeah. think about. So that. let's say a decade, give or take. Yeah. Plus or minus seven to ten, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, I I agree. I think it would be different. Uh, I know when I read Hunger Games, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. wonder like, how did this all come about? Which is nice when we have yeah. the serpents and songbirds and get to see a little bit more of that before time. And you mm-hmm. wouldn't have some of these relationships that June slash of Fred has, like Moira. That you know, she wouldn't have had that before time friend. So you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't have necessarily Ooh. had some of these heart to hearts. Or her mother, even though she yeah, plays such a minor role, because you see her mother on a film. You have some of these moments there. Um, the Luke thing. I think yeah, everything would change, and I think really. June slash of Fred would be a completely different character. I'll be interested to hear once you finish reading Testaments what friendship is like in that mm. book because, you know, watching this and it, we're already starting this discussion and we haven't really like officially started, but, you know, <laughs> reading okay. this and, and watching just her and of Glenn together, like it's so, it's such a sterile friend. You can't even really consider it. They're just walking partners or shopping partners because yeah. you can't trust. Yeah necessarily the other person they might inform on you and so friendship looks very different in Gilead because you just have to protect yourself because worse things you know could potentially happen but yeah no it's 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 interesting you know you find yourself and I I guess I could add this question of course you know being a man reading this novel Hmm. versus being a woman but the entire time I was thinking to myself like you know there are all these bad things happen, but like, what is, you know, the worst, what is the worst part? Cause reading Ooh. that experience in the red center where Janine and I of Warren, I think is her commander's name mm-hmm. where she was 
raped, I think like gang raped, and she's telling her story mm-hmm. in the circle, and then Aunt Weta says like, whose fault is that? And all the other handmaids have to go, your fault, your fault, your, like all this blame, yeah. It's which is really like society, you know, we're told often, right, that it is, well, she should have been out at night, she shouldn't have been wearing that. What was that. she wearing? Yeah, yeah, like all that, and so it's like, oh man, it's happening, and then you are at the commanders, mm-hmm. and like, uh, is that worse than being at the Red Center, and all this yeah. stuff, so it's, it's hard, and we'll We'll get to kind of real life too, because I have one kind of a controversial question to ask. I think to to wrap it all up, mm. but I did actually enjoy this, which shocked me. I mm. d- didn't go in like hate reading, like I'm not gonna like this, but I was interested to see if I wasn't going to like it. But I think again, my maturity and kind of, again being able to I think separate, you know, like my religious background with what was going on here and realizing like this is very tainted and, you know, taken out of context and things. It it helped me do that. But I, I did enjoy it. I think also thinking about Elizabeth Moss, who is an amazing actress and I have issues with that character now, which Tom, once you watch it, you'll you'll kinda of start to see. But being okay. able also to engage in this material in another medium was also helpful Mm -hmm. that I could like better connect with those characters so as I was reading this time I'm like picturing Elizabeth Moss picturing you know Rory Gilmore who played of of Glenn and that kind of thing and and I think it in my opinion this is and this might be an extreme thing to say but I feel like works like this are unfortunately becoming more relevant in certain aspects so that was also like oh yeah. my gosh you know that that kind of thing yeah. so yes I did enjoy it and I, th- I think it just took some time for now I'm not going to reread Orcs and Crake but uh, I am glad that I, I gave this another shake well, you know it, it took me a little while to realize that the name was of Fred because in my mind I was saying Alfred oh yeah and I just thought it was some weird yeah. weird Christian derived name for something yeah. because I'm just a theocratic thing and here's like weird name and then it and then I was like off war I'm like oh, oh. and then I was like yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think I, and that's you're, the way you're it's supposed literally to renamed as a possession of a man absolutely yeah that there's yeah. really not much of an identity there. yeah and and I think that's honestly how it's supposed to hit too yeah so I guess I'll begin at the beginning. I was going to start with the nonlinear storytelling since we've already mentioned that, but I will actually begin mm-hmm. at the very beginning because there the novel begins with three epigraphs. And I'll just read them to give us some idea. And I think already, you know, I'm just thinking about 10 years ago, like when I read this first one, I'm like, oh, no, I'm really in for it now. But the first one comes from the Bible, uh, Genesis, and I don't know what translation at what is using, but Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in God's stead, who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And she said, behold, my maid Billa, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. So you're kind of getting this whole sense of what that ceremony mm-hmm. is just from this. Yeah. Then from Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, but as to myself, having been wearied out for many years with offering vain, idle, visionary thoughts, and at length utterly despairing of success, I fortunately fell upon this proposal. 
And that is, isn't that the one where he's, he, the idea is to like eat infants? Yeah. Okay. Um, he, it, yeah, we can, we can get into it. Okay. That was being ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last one is a Sufi proverb. In the desert, there is no sign that says, thou shalt not eat stones. Okay, so the those are the three. So it really starts off on a happy note reading this book here. But mm-hmm. yeah, what what are the functions of these three epigraphs? And how does it lead us into this story as a whole? Narratively, I believe that the group, the extremist group that overthrows the government is called the Sons of Jacob. Or there is a group called the Sons of Jacob at one point, I believe. I think the, the Bible verse is just kind of outlining where they would have gotten this idea because they are fundamentalist extremists. So they will literally take things that suit them Mm -hmm. because that's what fundamentalist extremists do. You know, when, when, you know, we, and we see it in our society today when you're like talking about, talking about LGBTQ rights and they start bringing up like, Leviticus, I don't know, some, one of the Old Testament books where they have this one verse says that you blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, so you're going to completely ignore, like, I don't know, the gospel <laughs> where it's never actually mentioned. And, you know, like, you know, you, and, and you can have this debate, but they, they always they always love to go to to, to cherry pick things to, to prove some sort of bigoted point. So I think that's that's what she's doing here. They would cherry pick things out of the Bible to suit their needs. And this passage where basically describes the ceremony and the idea of a handmaid give me children or else i die you know this idea that procreation has become so paramount to the society um for various reasons uh the second one is yeah the the modest proposal is to solve the overpopulation and poverty and and uh in ireland by having english people eat the babies of the irish and he goes into very long detail of how do you prepare and cook these babies. It's actually really biting satire. And Swift is one of the, the, the progenitors of satire, modern satire. And a modest proposal is like the key, key work. So the idea that, you know, so it's a, she is being ironic there, right? Because we have an underpopulation problem in Gilead and it's this whole thing. But again, it's this whole idea of here's this extreme proposal yeah. that I have. And, you know, some would take it seriously, even though uh, the third one, uh, I'm going to ask you what you think that means. <laughs> I, yeah, that one is a bit quizzical. I, I guess it's like desperations again that you're – and eating stones, isn't this a way also to salivate? No, I'm taking it literally. But that some people will sure. often like suck on stones in order to like, I don't know survive i suppose but because you're in a desert so i wondered if that would be helpful at all but in the desert there thou shalt not eat stones but i yeah i don't know if that's all you have that one is a bit quizzical i was hoping that you'd be able to (laughs) help me out and now you're asking me to help you out with that one i don't know (laughs) i mean if, if the desert is associated with infertility and who knows though but eating stones isn't necessarily going to help you with anything so yeah. maybe this is just like another fruitless, a fruitless effort. Possibly or something. Maybe that's, that might be, well, and also the idea that, um, so the desert, I'm going to English teacher this, the desert being representative of the infertility 
among the people of Gilead, because that's the reason they have these handmaids, right? To produce offspring for men and women who, you know, for whatever they can, they can't bear children. If, if you're having a problem with population, why restrict sex? You know yeah. what I mean? There's a lot of infertility among this population because of various ecological disasters, but there are people who can reproduce. Why be so controlling over all of this? Why not let people run free and try to have as many children as possible, especially if the race, if you're, if the human race or the nation or whatever is in danger of aging out or dying out? I mean, that's the only th- that's one take I can think of it. I don't know if I'm right there, though. Yeah, I, I've Googled this. It says that it can be interpreted in many ways from gradesaver.com. It says, given the novelist's preoccupation with the structures of power, it suggests that power can be secured by controlling access to scarce resources. In the desert, mm. stones are not a resource, but food and water are. Okay. And schmoop, schmoop.com says... <laughs> Uh, there's no sign, but if there were one, it would say don't eat stones. Well, if there's no sign, maybe it's because the rule is super obvious. Of course, you shouldn't eat stones, let alone stones in the desert. Mm. But Interesting. And, sure. and I just Googled eating stones and I got a lot of things about pica. <laughs> <laughs> so. I swear, though, if you like suck on, I feel like pe- some people suck on stones in order to salivate, like have some saliva production but i'd have to yeah i'd have to do that stella will report back to us on one month on the next episode of required reading maybe someone will yeah offer us uh offer us something of that yeah no i agree i agree with everything i you know if i were to it's interesting because of the swift that there are absolutely and we know this i think in the state of the U.S. at this point in time, that someone may be like completely farcical or sarcastic or satirical, and another person's going to take that as truth, or you know, there's yes. there's not going to be much fact checking. The birds aren't real movement. I think in because that's a satirical movement. I think that like encapsulates some of the stuff that's going on there. So that Jonathan Swift, like, yeah, absolutely, this is a way that we're going to help ourselves out and and. Maybe some people actually thought that. The one for me, really, I think that that summarizes or like really helps you get to where this novel is going before we get there is the first one from the Bible. And I think that's probably why my my hackles were up, (laughs) you know, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. like, oh, gosh, what's going on here? But you're absolutely right, of course, that and, and this is true probably of all time that people are and I feel like I've said this multiple times anyways, that because there is a lot up for interpretation and that people kind of use it however they want to, we get into a lot of trouble and, you know, the the divisions obviously within the church and then, you know, mm-hmm. some groups are loved and some groups aren't loved. And I think that's why, you know, I had a question at the end, but I, I think it's it's an easy question to answer why the like the actual Bible is locked up. It's locked up in the household and books in general are locked up as well. But because he's pulling you know, these quotes out and they're highlighted and it's a ceremony. So it's the same quotes that are happening all the time, but they're being pulled out of context. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, that's happening old Testament. 
I'd have to see because even a Fred and I forgot to do this because I was going to, but even a Fred is like, I don't think that's, you know, actually, you know, from the Bible or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So we, we can't trust the people who are reading the Bible to us and it's locked up because they don't, number one, you're not allowed to read things, but number two, because that knowledge within there, you'd be like, this is messed up. This kind of stuff shouldn't happen because a lot of stuff shifted once we get into the New Testament. With, with Jesus' coming and, and redemption and grace and things like that. A certain segment of society that is represented by the group that has the power here wants an uneducated populace. Right. Because yep. they're easier to control. And, you know, that goes back to the Middle Ages, too, because the, the, the peasantry in the Middle Ages is largely illiterate, right? So who has the power to preach, to to give them the lessons from the Bible and use that to oppress, well, you have the Catholic Church, right, before the Protestant Reformation. And it's a slow evolution of literacy across the ages. But, like, you know, you start with Gutenberg and the printing press, and that is that kind of gets that ball rolling where more and more people become literate as you go through history and um but yeah so the idea that if you can keep if you can keep the populace stupid and entertained you can uh control them pretty easily remember uh remember mildred from fahrenheit 451 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know and they're taking books away and that whole thing too so yeah it t- totally makes sense yeah absolutely Okay, yeah, where to go from there? I guess I, I did want to talk about this non-linear storytelling okay. that we have. Do you, I, I think it's more like of, of preference. How, how did you like that it does go present time, flashbacks to her indoctrination in the Red Center, yeah. as well as further flashbacks to with Luke in that life and even farther. So we have like several layers of things going on. How did you like this storytelling? And then how did it work with the novel as a whole? Like it obviously would have been a completely different story had we started Mm -hmm. from beginning and worked our way over there. So what does it add? What sort of dimension does it add to the storytelling that it is nonlinear? Yeah. You see, I really liked it because it felt real. It felt realistic to me. Because it was a first-person narrative, and therefore it did read it. When you get to the afterword at the end, and they talk about that this was tapes found, blah, 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 it all starts to stitch to kind of click into place where it's like, oh, this is somebody hurriedly or even under, I don't know if it was under duress or not, but trying to get their story out so the story can be retold and retold and maybe somebody can hear this to hear how horrible everything is. When you have somebody who is doing something like that, the natural natural storytelling by when somebody tells a story very often isn't necessarily always linear. There's things that they insert, they go back and they're like, wait, I forgot this part or, you know, or it might be a series of interviews or, you know, we don't we don't know if she was being interviewed by somebody or if she was just telling the story or what but i thought it worked really well especially because i got the sense that off a fred had this sort of i don't know if brain fog is the way to describe it but it certainly was a she certainly was kind of pushing her way through what had been done to her 
to tell to tell the truth right so in doing that you can kind of see that struggle within her story and the way she was telling it i will say it did get a little confusing at times um you know because because of the way it jumps around and then you have to like adjust yourself to and kind of place the place the pin on the timeline so to speak right but maybe i also have the advantage on this of just having finished up a unit on beloved which does the same thing all the time so i was already doing non-linear storytelling yeah and i i used to not like it but honestly when i started appreciating non-linear storyline is and i know that this is not a favorite or loved film necessarily but man of steel and how that Ooh. crafted its non-linear storyline. After that, I was like, oh, yeah. I can see the benefits of doing this. And I know that's a controversial I, opinion, but I do like it. The thing is, I liked... I liked Man of Steel. Oh, I have so quibbles with part. I have quibbles with parts yeah. of it. Batman versus Superman. Oh, well, we don't talk about that as much. Yeah. But I know I did. I, I genuinely did enjoy much of Man of Steel. So, and you're right. The the non-linear, the flashback storytelling aspect of it really suited the way it needed to be built as well yeah i had to because there are paragraph breaks but i and i like to i don't know if it's like ocd or not but i like to read 50 pages a day you know if i can mm. but it's easier to stop at a chapter because you wouldn't yeah, know necessarily what had happened before like you'd have to go backwards if you did a paragraph break because she could be on something completely different you'd have to refresh and mm. and not all the times does she have a flashback that directly relates to what's happening in the present? Because yeah. I think you're right that it's just like it, her brain just goes off on that. I think it's very Virginia Woolf sort of stream of consciousness almost. And I think it yeah. is very realistic in, in how someone would like, Oh, you know, I just thought of this, like da da da. And yeah. it might connect to her, but it it doesn't necessarily for us who, who was not experiencing it. Well, you're also you're also dealing with somebody who suffered a prolonged trauma. Absolutely. So their their ability to remember is going to come back over time. The more and more you un it, it is unraveling for her. So it's and it's revealing itself for her as she's revealing it to us too. Absolutely. I you said brain fog, and that reminded me of what Janine slash of Warren had. There is a specific term I cannot remember, and she was losing it throughout anyways, mm. but then at that execution of Glenn and of Fred, see her walking, there's like blood all over, because I think she really went at that guy, and mm. June slash of Fred says something like very specific, like she has blank, like she finally, I think, just completely lost it, I guess, probably in order to, and that's, and that's honestly what you kind of have to do in order to survive that yeah that trauma that you're going through is is to almost like not exist in in yourself i think mm -hmm. i don't know if i'll be able to to find that at some point but i i think connecting to it because i see under another section i had that you call it tight or even claustrophobic as a perspective mm -hmm. as we're getting the the rise of gilead through random flashbacks i'm i was also interested with of Fred talking about her level of reliability as a narrator, which I thought was very interesting because I was even thinking as I'm reading this, like this is hard to, she sometimes says like, uh, you know, this is as close as I can get, da, 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 da. And, and it also connects, I think, with writing in general, which I, I do have a question about just like looking at this as an idea of 
what writing is, authorship, and, and things like that. But let's see. So chapter 23, I don't know if we have the same thing, but mine is page 134. I shall read. It's just a little chunk at the beginning because I was literally just thinking about her reliability, and then she starts talking about it. She says... This is a reconstruction. All of it is a reconstruction. It's a reconstruction now in my head as I lie flat on my single bed rehearsing what I should or shouldn't have said, what I should or shouldn't have done, how I shouldn't have played it. If I ever get out of here, and then, yeah, let's stop there. Da, 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 da. Uh, when I get out of here, if I'm ever able to set this down in any form, even in the form of one voice to another, it will be a reconstruction then, too, at yet another remove. It's impossible to say a thing exactly the way it was, because what you say can never be exact you always have to leave something out there are too many parts sides cross currents nuances too many gestures which could mean this or that too many shapes which can never be fully described too many flavors in the air or on the tongue half colors too many but if you happen to be a man sometime in the future and you've made it this far please remember you will never be subjected to the temptation or feeling you must forgive a man as a woman that it just goes on about that but it's interesting I feel like you and I always talk about the reliability of a narrator <laughs> I think yeah. this often comes you know memoirs because this could be considered a fictional memoir if you think about it mm -hmm. yeah it's structured for yeah and there is one scene in particular that she tells the scene three different times and that is her first time having sex with Nick she goes through it she says that's not actually what happened she goes through it again and then she's like actually that's not how it happened which is really interesting that she did that but yeah what are your thoughts on the fact that well, I guess we can ask, you know, how reliable do you think of Fred is, given what we just talked about in terms of this nonlinear storytelling, the fact that she's even called herself out, and that we do have those moments where she says, like, that's not exactly what happened. Remember, I, I think she even, there's another time when, oh yeah, Jezebel's, when she has quotations, because oftentimes she does not use quotes as she's mm -hmm. restating someone. But then sometimes she does have quotes, and so you think, oh, I can believe this a bit more, but Moira's section at Jezebel's is all in quotation marks, but even before Fred says, you know, this is as good as I can remember it. So, yeah, thoughts on, I, th there's so many questions, but kind of take it, I guess, where you want to just on on that and, and maybe what that does to this as a novel and is there like another depth or, or layer that we can look at this? Is there a commentary coming from Atwood about writing and things like that? Possibly. I, I think, uh, funny enough, and maybe it's ironic, I think her admission of unreliability makes her more reliable. She's being very honest, and she's being as honest as she possibly can. And if we know what her perspective is because of what's happened to her, we as the reader then can start to read between the lines and suss out that the things she talks about actually are happening. And I think the only people would, who would quibble with her or would be those who are out to discredit her. The type who, when you are giving testimony or telling a story and you get one detail right, they harp on the detail you got wrong because they never wanted to believe you in the first place. You know, you said it was five, this thing, it was four, this, and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, all right, well, I slipped up and, you know, and, and, you know they think they're cross-examining you, that they're, you know, whatever. But I'm looking at her and I'm hearing this and I'm seeing this story unfold and I'm like, yeah, some of the details may be fuzzy, 
and some of the, the there's a little bit of a haze but at the same time all of this logically makes sense and i know she's being as honest as she possibly can be in her, her mind she's being honest as well and there's no sort of weird m night Shyamalan twist that this is all some sort of simulation or this was a dream or whatever so yeah i i think that she is uh, i think she's actually more reliable than she realizes uh, the quotes versus no quotes thing is really interesting to me, too, because I, I noticed that as well. Maybe she really remembers the thing with Moira because it'll stick out because it was Moira, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who she knew from her past life and who she had been in the um, in the reeducation center with. And then all of a sudden she is gone because she... Uh, she had a pretty good escape too. She like held a nun at knife point basically and, and got herself out of there. And, uh, and she's like shocked to see her to the point where she remembers the memory very, very clearly. So I, I kind of see how that's more accurate and that's why she went with the quotes to be as accurate as possible. But I think that you can tell me if I'm wrong here. I think that there is a distinction between accuracy and honesty in this book. And I think they're both good, but I think with the honesty is more important and she is being very honest. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Why do you think that she went through those three iterations of her first time with Nick? I think trying to recall it, I think there's some leftover sense of modesty or shame because of her indoctrination and then maybe trying to protect him in that sort of sense and telling it not that there needs to be any protection from him, but again, these reflexes that she has toward these things. Yeah. And it's, it's almost also like different eras of, mm -hmm. you know, what that would be like the time before what sex would have been like yeah. uh, the current time. And then, yeah. Thinking about Luke too, which I think gets to your, your point of shame and things like that. But that, yeah, that was very interesting to have her. Yeah. Tell that, tell that three different times. I will nitpick you and say that she didn't hold a, a nun at knife at knife was, point, uh, but an aunt. And I will only do that okay, because, because I, I, I try not to obviously nitpick on the show, but only because oh, the nuns were also in the line of fire. Yeah. Many yeah, of them it's... went to the con because they, I think their uh, celibacy was off putting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you have to know something's wrong if like all of a sudden the nuns are being ushered out somewhere. So, but don't forget that in, in the more stricter evangelical parts of Christianity in this country, they do not consider Catholics to be part of Christianity. So they would get rid of the Catholics. I suppose that is true. Yeah. Because there were, there were some denominations that were under, like Baptists, I think there is, mm -hmm. they kind of, there are moments of like yeah. war, there's war going on, but you don't get too mm -hmm. much information because the Fred doesn't know too much, but I remember Baptists at yeah. one point. So yeah, it's hard to tell what sort of denomination. They put a bunch of Jews on a boat and sink the boat yes, and stuff like that. To like go they to were going to ship homeland? them off to Europe, but they, but they never actually made it because it's obvious that they, that they sunk the boat. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to think of what my original question was oh her yes her reliability oh, no 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 i was just trying to piece back no it's been a good conversation i just needed to follow those trails i agree with you i think there is that's a good distinction to make between honesty and did you say authenticity mm -hmm. okay yeah i i agree with you i think she is uh you can accuracy. tell yeah I, think I said accuracy oh accuracy yeah it was accuracy i yeah. 
you can tell the attempts, the fact that she lays it out there. I think a lot of it also when we talk about this, we often say like, hey, the author would not say such and such if she was not to be or he was not to be believed. It often seems yeah. like it's the women that we talk about this to, and they they always seem to be pretty reliable. And I think even if you know she's making errors or maybe it's like she wishes it were one way it's too almost like far-fetched to think that this clearly can't be real because everything is like related to each other so it's not like there was like oh this seems pretty normal whoa that's extreme it's like everything pretty is on the spectrum of extreme Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's yeah. it's all pretty consistently bad what she's telling yeah. us. So it's not like, huh, that's that's a red flag. That doesn't seem in line with the other stuff that you're going through. Yeah, no, you're right. I also wanted to talk about some terms that were used. So let's see, page ninety four, and I'm gonna have to swears because I do want to read this, but I found this very oh. interesting when I was reading it. Is this the ceremony? Uh, yes. Yeah, ceremony. So I guess we could. So I'll I'll tie it in. I can tie these two questions in. So the ceremony first happens in chapter 15. And my question was why so late? Because we're kind of, it's it's already there almost. It's embedded with the, one of those epigraphs. We're hearing things. We we don't know exactly what her her station is. What what it pertains to and then we have it it's like all built up and then it happens in uh, in chapter 15 now in chapter 16 so we'll tie these two together uh, she does use some terms here and I was really interested in this use of rape and she says that she does not consider it rape so let me read this quote and yes there will be some swears which oh. I will bleep out but Tom Tom I just wanted to warn you Stella's I know. the F word <laughs> multiple times okay my this is page 94 for me but my red her- uh, blah, blah. okay my red skirt is hitched up to my waist though no higher below is it I can't even get there below it the commander is f- what he is f- is the lower part of my body. I do not say making love because this is not what he's doing. Copulating two would be inaccurate because it would not imply two people and only one is involved. Nor does rape cover it. Nothing is going on here that I haven't signed up for. There wasn't a lot of choice, but there was some, and this is what I chose. So kind of two different questions, but I feel like they're tied together. So why do you think the ceremony happens, I would say, kind of late um, in the novel, maybe like a third of the way through? And then, yeah, those terms that she's using, trying to, like, make sense of what's going through, but saying that it's not rape, whereas... I feel, I don't know, I feel like it's still, it, it's very interesting that she says it's not. Do you think that's the indoctrination? Did you have any, did this kind mm. of, did your ears prick up your eyes in, in, with this section? What do, you, what do you think about the terms used here? I think her point about where she says it's not right comes through the indoctrination because she's been made to feel that she is doing a duty. Okay. And the idea that a choice between more than one horrible fate is not exactly a choice you know, because obviously at some point she had a choice to be a handmaid versus, I don't know, being sent to the colonies right. or something. And I get the impression that the colonies are essentially like outskirts of Gilead or or, or territories of the former United States. And they're very badly irradiated yeah. from probably nuclear war. This was the 80s. It's like, what's the worst fate? What's the, you know, death is not an option here. And I have, I choose the fate that's the, not as bad as the other one. Um, so she is equating it to duty, perhaps to put it out of her head. 
or to cope or something like that, because she's also been indoctrinated to be the idea that you are now the possession of this person, you know, your wifely duty, so to speak. And even though she's not the wife, but you know what I mean? It was, it was kind of interesting the way she described it. Why it happens so late? It really is some of the last bits of exposition in the novel, you know, like, like we get a lot of the novel, the novel begins slowly. It's, you know, it's a very daily routine sort of thing as exposition for the handmaids in their life. So by the time we get here, it's night and it's this is this is the one duty. And then we get into why they are. And and I think we've we've learned enough about her at this point that we feel ready to know this. And this is the most shocking bit of information up until this point, that there's an oppression of women. And, and, and then it's a it's a physical taking of them. Um, and defiling and, you know, all, all sorts of things. So that that's my take there. Yeah, I, th- I think it also builds up suspense. You know, we have yeah. these bits of this information and it, it seems pretty bad what we're seeing and it's like all building and you're wondering like, what is this building to? What is this job that she has? And then it reaches this um, this like crescendo of like, oh my gosh, it's even worse than I had imagined kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, which is interesting, almost like you, you reach a climax of the first third of the, the novel and then maybe there's some falling action and then maybe there's like more rising action. It'd be interesting to kind of trace trace the layout of the of the plot but i feel like it does Mm -hmm. build suspense and it's almost like too horrific to believe that well you know things can't get much worse than this right and then yeah so i that that not rape i was like i i don't even know i think part of it is it's always referred to that uh from june slash of fred's perspective in the show and so to see it Mm -hmm. here i'm like huh are you sure about that but the fact is it's like she says she has a choice uh between yeah handmaid slash colonies or death i suppose and then Mm -hmm. but it's not like she could not go to the ceremony like everyone is is forced to be there, so yeah, it, yeah. it is very so. I, yeah, I think it is. Yes, <laughs> rape. Yes, you know, but I, yes. um, it's exploitative person. One, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, it, it's interesting to hear, you know, to be reading this and kind of witnessing it in your mind, and then juxtaposing that with everything that Aunt Lydia is saying in the Red Center, like, oh, it's so much better now than it was the time before, and yeah. uh, talking about how people would rape women and everything. You're like, is there what what sort of how are you able to disconnect? You know what's happening there? It's it's yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, no, that was very interesting. So I guess we can kind of say that is her her fog. If I can find that, I'll, I'll look for that term that we, we kind of see. Oh, I think I found it accidentally. Oh. What is this? Oh, yeah, she's let go totally now. This is on page 281. What chapter is this? Last page of chapter 43. She's let go totally now. She's in free fall. She's in withdrawal. That's what they call it. So free fall or withdrawal is kind of where we are. Now, June hasn't gotten that far, but I think maybe mm-hmm. all these characters kind of are in free fall or withdrawal to a certain extent. Yeah, she kind of, Janine kind of has this break, you know, in that moment because she's wild-eyed, holding a clump of bloody yeah. hair and being like, everything's fine, you know, and it is. It's it's a break. Yeah, which is interesting so. to trace Janine's journey because, you know, look at that moment and juxtapose it with, I think, the first time we see her, she's pregnant. 
really positive, like radiant, but she's also looking down on people because you want to be pregnant. Yeah, and the other women are kind of jealous of her, too. Yes, and you're treated well, and that's also, you know, kind of your purpose there, right? So it's like, yeah, I'm fulfilling the purpose. She, we witnessed the birth, so we understand what that is like, which is, all you know, reading it is ridiculous, watching the show is ridiculous, because, like, the the commander's wives, like, pretend they're also in labor. It's it's crazy. I I can't wait for you to watch the show. It is bizarre. Oh, yeah, super weird. And it's... Uh, it's so yeah, and the handmaids are there too, and it's like they're getting so worked up that even if they've been pregnant or had children before, like they'll lactate because I think even a Fred said like sometimes that she's lactating because it's like they're so involved. It is like Midsummer in a certain Mm -hmm. way of like being involved so empathetically or compassionately, like you're feeling the pain of the other person. Uh, For people who have seen seen that film, I think you'll understand. But it also goes to that sort of. I'm speaking in tongues at the revival type of oh yeah for sure yeah you know action that you see uh and and it's so it's meant to you know and and so I think a significant amount of it is for show as well yeah and there's a lot of these things that are done in sort of this weird ceremonial way to to make this seem more more holy than it actually is and also to maintain the power structure yeah and communal like everything is so communal too because Mm. you would expect you know birth would be at least the you know the mother and then you know her partner but now it's like it's every it's the the mother it's the commander's wife it's all the commander's wives it's all the handmaids couple aunts in there it's yeah it's it's well because she's She's basically property, right? So, yeah. you know, you, yeah, you're, it's an, she's an investment too yeah. in, in that moment. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just interesting to, to see the different uh, Janines that are kind of book ending mm-hmm. this book. And then you have, you later find out that she has had, I think, couple miscarriages or a couple like janine or off of fred janine i'm pretty sure janine, had lost yeah. yeah because she gives birth i think the baby is alive and then it dies but we can talk about yes. some of these descriptions because I, so. I did have a question about that that babies are referred to as a keeper on babies or shredders and my question mm. was what other real or fictional worlds do these terms suggest that reminds me of like brave new world oh true the og poji yeah and and the 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 whole factory uh production of babies and stuff so that was my first thought yeah no that is very true it it also you know it's it's never like oh no this is super unfortunate the environment is really toxic i feel like the handmaids mm-hmm. are still blame for it like there's still shame oh, I think, yeah even after i guess she technically had a shredder which sounds like i'm saying it from teenage mutant ninja turtles but <laughs> like there was shame which again you know seeing how proud she was being pregnant and walking and shopping when she didn't need to be and then now losing uh two kids they will they will always blame the woman of course that's 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 been the case yeah. they will always blame the woman they will always blame the victim because that is how they maintain power and they will they will convince these the women that it is their fault mm-hmm. so yeah 
And it's, you know, unfortunately, because we're getting into like kind of realism again and relevant mm-hmm. materials and whether or not, because, you know, I, I, I think we try to keep like political ideals apart mm-hmm. from this, whether or not you uh, uh, agree with um, Roe v. Wade. You have to at least consider that there are some people that are in mortal danger within their pregnancy, yeah. and they are now not allowed to like get help because it would kill the baby or mm-hmm. there might be a chance of doing it. And so this is also, I think, really like frightening just and they're giving birth here but just like watching that scene and thinking like anything could happen but it's not they don't care about the mother at all it is just like is the mother is the carrier and we only care about mm-hmm. the baby yeah well uh, yeah. so it's it's unfortunately getting like really scarily relevant in my mm-hmm. opinion yes but yeah it's it's also just it's too bad that they're referred to you know keeper unbaby shredder so and unbaby i think mm-hmm. the assumption is that probably has some sort of deformity Mm -hmm. which i wonder and perhaps i don't think that they talked about but i wonder if we get to maybe exposure like how do they get rid of those unbabies because they probably don't want them that's a good question they don't really get into it because offer doesn't know what happens and yeah and yeah and then there's that whole again the idea that that very patriarchal idea that you are not fulfilled as a woman unless you've had children and so many women have become convinced of this, you know, and you, I'm not saying that it can't be fulfilling to have children. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you're, that, that belief, that the belief that I, I really want a child and this is, you know, that that's fine. But there's a certain segment of like when somebody has a miscarriage, they'll get blamed for it. And then they'll be told, well, you just try again, yeah. you know, not, not considering you know, and or not even seeking the care that you need, both mentally and physically. It's get back up on that horse. Yeah. You know, and and that's what's here too. And that you know, I see that's where the realism of of the novel comes in, despite the speculative nature of it. Yeah. 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 I've known a couple people, which doesn't seem like a lot, mm-hmm. but that's certainly more than I would like to, who have had miscarriages, and the emotional toll is so mm-hmm. heavy and. Then yeah. they have to go in and get a procedure to, like, get the rest of that removed. It's just, like, mm-hmm. it's it's horrific and, and that they have to, yeah, go through that. And I will say, you know, about societal pressure speaking, you know, from a, from a woman's perspective, it's high. It's high and heavy. And, you know, the first school that I taught at, the headmaster would ask frequently, he would ask me when I was going to have kids. And I wasn't, I wasn't dating. I wasn't is... married. I'm sorry. That is so inappropriate. It's, no, it's bad that there would be um, surveys that would go out sometimes, and like you might be randomly chosen. So every year when that survey of that person came out, I was like, he asked me when I'm going to have kids. And so like it, it had gotten to the point where like each time he asked me, I would say something kind of like the the um, Jennifer Aniston like no no uterus no say, but I basically would say something like oh you know I've, I've sold my eggs or something like that. But it would like how is that? any of your business number one and why am i just like a walking uterus to you so it's crazy unfortunately like this stuff is real we want to think that it's not real but it it really is it really is that there is something like quote unquote wrong with you if you're not married at a certain age yeah and yeah if you you don't have some some little tykes running around so and and you trust me and and even in the societal oppression thing there is a passive aggressive nature to 
you know, people who have just been married who uh, older relatives will ask them, so when are you going to have kids, you know, and, and that sort of thing, because that's the, quote, expectation, you know, and such. So it's it comes in varieties. Oi. OK. Guess to, to, to get back, we could we could talk about this is an interesting episode, Tom, because mm-hmm. I feel like we're having more of a conversation than like just questions <laughs> that we're having. Like we're just kind of just yeah. shooting the shit, as they like to say about this particular novel. I'm having a lot of fun. Thank you yeah, for being I with too. me. I too. Really. Let's talk about Serena Joy uh, because sure. she is an interesting character, I think. So she former gospel singer. We find out in the end notes that there's like no one by that name, which we knew from a Fred that she like kind of takes on that that name and she's somebody mm-hmm. else. But she is also an advocate for traditional values, quote unquote. But she she's unhappy. She's she seems yeah. not like a happy person. Why do you feel like she's unhappy? And then what do you think, if anything, is the author Atwood saying through Serena Joy? I wonder if Serena Joy at one point when this all went down, took a moment to realize what she had done or what she had Mm. been a part of and is regretting it because she is in a position of privilege because she's the commander's wife. So she does not have, she's not a handmaid and this is a very tiered society, but she is still oppressed. And I think that she saw I think she honestly has regrets. I think she didn't realize when you're caught up in the, in swept up in the moment, so to speak. And then you turn around and you realize it's, it's, it's kind of a dear God, what have I done type of thing. And so she's, I think she's bitter. I also, I also think she's bitter toward her husband because her husband, I think she, she has a pretty good idea of what her husband's doing on the sly, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, I think she's had a pretty good idea of that's what's happened in the past, too, that this off of Fred is not the first, right. you know, one he's taken to Jezebel's, obviously. Right. So and he's and I think this is a pattern with him. I think with him, it's a certain amount of exploitation. It's a, a power. Um, you know, he has the ability to do these things. And she yeah, I think she has I think Serena Joy has. um subverted her own independence and personality because because that you know in 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 a way that she didn't realize until it was too late honestly you know who she reminds me of tammy faye baker oh interesting yeah that's who i immediately thought of okay it's because she was a popular, you know, because Serena Joyce is popular gospel singer. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's totally Tammy Faye because she was the wife of the popular televangelist. Mm-hmm. Right. And they had the show and then he was caught embezzling money. And there's a whole thing with Jessica Hahn. And then now he's on evangelical TV again after serving his sentence, selling doomsday prep crap. Um, there's a whole there's like a whole documentary about that nut job. But yeah, but but I just think of her and I think of this, you know, the whole, you know, the whole idea that that the wives of these men go along with it and they believe it and believe it until there is a moment where they realize what they have done. And I think that's what Serena Joy did. I also was thinking about the orange juice person. What was her name Anita something? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is that about? Anita Bryant? You might be right. Yeah. I think during maybe the time of Reagan or so, got a pie in the mm. face by 
Oh yeah, she was awful too. Oh, she yeah. is a monster. I was monster. also thinking about her. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think maybe yours might be more apt, if only because I wonder if Serena Joy had a delusion that if she is supporting her husband and maybe she's helping him come up with these ideas, that she would also be on the top of that power structure yeah. echelon. And then when she realized, no, you're not exempt. You're a woman. You can't be up mm-hmm. here. Then, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of regret, especially because if you are in bed with your husband and another woman and watching your husband he, uh, have she sex has... slash, yeah, F-U-C-K, um, this person, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I, I I can't tell if he enjoys it because she's a Fred certainly doesn't. Right. And Serena Joy, it like hates a Fred. You know, yeah. there's like a there's a real disdain for that whole coming out of her in that whole sequence. Yeah. And I also wonder, like, who thought that was a good idea? Like, you know, just and, and I'm not being completely sarcastic there. No. I'm just like I, I read that part and I'm like, I'm like, what was the thought that went into this? This is the ceremony we're going to have. Like, you you almost want to be like. Who drew that up and, and did it, if there was it just well it comes from this so we're gonna have this literal translation of of this Bible verse that was yeah. at the beginning of the thing. You know, just like Yeah, I guess it's not again, sinful because your wife is there witnessing yeah. it and, and by witnessing it she's condoning the She's giving consent. Yeah. 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 I would say that he probably doesn't I guess apart from doesn't enjoy it apart from I suppose any sensual experience that you know mm. a man would enjoy but when they start to get to know each other and he like tried to touch her face I was like what are you doing and the wife is right there which I can't even imagine or yeah. you know looked at her but um I imagine it's yeah disinterest but yeah we do know my plot synopsis didn't get into this but we do know that there was a handmaid before of Fred we learned that that hand Maid was also taken to Jezebel's, or, or it's likely. I think she has a no-no, but it's very likely. And that yeah. um, Serena Joy had done something because she found out about that, and she even says like he did it again. And then it's that handmaid kills herself. Yeah. So we do, yeah. So that's why we we get into this predicament. You know, I sometimes think about gender traitors or race traitors which technically a gender traitor in this universe is a gay person a gay man or a, a lesbian but uh, i i always use that term to mean like somewhat like a woman not supporting another woman and so i true. wonder if atwood is at all kind of considering this like it you know in the decline of feminism or when women are losing their rights but other women mm. are like yay you know kind of like you know the people who are maybe pro like let's get rid of roe v wade how yeah. are you supporting the people that don't have health care like that kind of thing i what, don't know if there's any sort of political messaging of yeah. you know women you need to support other women because we're already at the bottom so yeah. <laughs> you need to help each other out i don't know I don't know. I think she's getting in there because she's certainly looking at what was then the rise of the moral majority in the late 1970s into the 1980s and the backlash against feminism. The idea that somebody like Anita Bryant and some of those others were like, well, you know, we're, we're here to, that has this very conservative 
viewpoint that was ushered in with Reagan yeah. in terms of power in the White House, you know, and, and that's when this movement grew that became bigger and bigger as it gets into the 1990s and such. So, so yeah, I think Atwood is certainly responding to that. And these people would welcome the oppression. I don't know if it's the right set of words to have here, but there is a certain amount of voting against one's own interest as a woman and then not supporting, you know, not supporting your fellow person and such. And for the, for what, a belief system that you've been told that is very patriarchal that is being used to control. I mean, like, you know, there's just a whole thing. And I think it's, this is taking it to an extreme, but as we said a couple of times, it's not too far fetched mm -hmm. either. So, yeah, there was a question about the Canterbury tales, which I included. Mm. Because I know that, that, that is a threat that is looming over <laughs> us. I know that you want to bring him in there, but yeah. So this title, the handmaid's tale, certainly brings to mind titles from Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Why might Atwood have wanted us to make this connection? And then I think you had a sub-question about how this might fit into dystopian science fiction or a speculative fiction genre and maybe what connections she might be uh, making or, or from whom she is pulling. Yeah, I think I actually, we actually talked Did we? about okay. that. Sub question, yeah, because I was talking about Bradbury oh, sure, and Orwell sure, sure. and Huxley yeah. and such. So, because I just I started, and I don't, I'm not saying, and I'm saying it because I was like, uh, she's like she reads like a student of of them and is taking the taking some of those motifs and elements and and saying yes, these are pieces of the the recipe of the whatever that I'm using to create this this book and doing it in a way that is like just exactly what you would have wanted me to do with it right so it's not you know it's a compliment you know, she's pulling from these things and she's making something even better from the pieces that she sees uh from those novels yeah well the, the various if you're unfamiliar with the structure of the canterbury tales you have the general prologue which is uh narrated by uh chaucer the leader of the pilgrims who is the pilgrim who is going along with several other pilgrims to canterbury and on the way, they decide to tell different stories. And then each of the tales is narrated by one of the characters. So you have the knight, the miller, the cook, the wife of Bath, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the parson, the partner. It is very revelatory and very a good illustration of the, the different types of people in medieval society at that time. And it's one of the reasons it still gets studied. The Wife of Bath's tale and prologue is very proto-feminist. I see where she is kind of putting that connection there to, you know, that this would be the, the tale of somebody who is part of a society and we're reading it to learn more about what that society was like at the time. I have nothing to add to that. I knew that you would bring <laughs> your experience and expertise on that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for proving me right. That Chaucer class I took in college. Yes. I knew you'd be able to answer that particular tale. Well, I don't even know how to form a question around him, but I just found Nick such an interesting character, especially of Fred's quote-unquote attraction to him. Like, what is that coming from? Why is she attracted to him? Why does she want to have sex with him repeatedly? Compared to, like, the doctor, she feels uncomfortable. Or 
the actual commander who is there and she could have a relationship with. What is it about Nick that's so enticing to a Fred? Well, he's young. He's attractive. He's Julia from 1984. Oh, interesting. The idea that he's he's different and there's something different and alluring because she was part of the anti-sex league but there's something different and alluring about her now at first of course winston's like i want to bash her face then but he sees her he meets her and it's it's there's a seduction there that's um and, and part of it is the allure of the illicit affair but yeah he's or he is in a non-sexual way clarice from Fahrenheit because Clarice is this is a non-sexual relationship between her and Montag but I, I see that he is fulfilling that role uh, that in those other two novels were fulfilled by women because of the you know the, the protagonists were hetero males so here you have a female and the the, the, the sexes is, are the sexes are reversed yeah so that's what I was like I, and when I was so that's what's special because he represents a little bit of rebellion. He represents a little bit of freedom from the oppression, especially when she starts to fall for him. And I think she kind of reminds her of Luke a little bit too. Yeah. I think there is that. Does this damage her character at all? Like, would you, I mean, I think very superficially you could be, you know, like once a cheater, always a cheater, always the other woman. But I feel like that's so, Mm surface no. level like you can't you're in shallow you can't do it but man i mean i don't know like what is it I, I think there was a question about like nature kind of always finds a way and i, I think this you know like jezebel's mm-hmm. is a way for that and and maybe this is like that is this a feminist take that you know women women should have just the same amount of sexual freedom as a commander is and going to jezebel's or is this damaging also to her reputation of like, well, what about Luke? I think it's it's an expression. I think it is a little bit liberating that like, you know, women should have women should. Right. They should be able to have the same sort of freedom that men have in this regard. Um, I think the other thing is that I think it's very natural anyway that you cannot deny that sort of attraction especially in this like in an oppressive society there's going to be rebellion at some point anyway because of the way things these things always get out right you know i mean you cannot you cannot singularly oppress something like this um i also think it tracks very well with a character who is who has been who gets this taste of freedom at the same time that she gets a taste of freedom off glenn of glenn sorry starts kind of bringing her into the whole mayday idea and she starts ignoring her for the sake of the boyfriend, which I think is also very realistic. Mm. Um, not saying that women do oh, distracted by a boy, but I think in this situation, this scenario, yeah, this, that makes a lot of sense. And again, and I think she's overwhelmed by all of it too, you know, mm-hmm. In a way that's positive, both positive and has its drawbacks. But I, you know, I think she is she is overwhelmed by by what she's experiencing because she's experiencing so much new, or not new, renewed or, or so much that used to be familiar is unfamiliar, and, and it's just 
things flood back and, and it just, it's, it's a fulfillment that she didn't know that she needed or didn't expect to get. Yeah. And, and I think there's certainly some escapism there where she can focus on this. But when of Glenn is talking about all this stuff, like get the information from the commander, you're kind of whiplashed back into, this is actually my real life of, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. handmaid and, and this is this totalitarian regime. Whereas she can have kind of romantic ideas and daydream about Nick. So it might be yeah, another kind of sanity saving uh, device to to get her through. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just found that very interesting. And Nick as well, just because first time that they met kind of one on one, he kisses her. But mm-hmm. then after that, it's like very impersonal. Like, man, you it's like 100 to zero, which is which was very interesting. <laughs> So in Gilead, we have different categories of women. Uh, we have wives, whether they're, oh, there are more than this. What was that other mm-hmm. category of like, oh, man, it's not like an mm. unwife. It's like kind of because a commander's wife is one thing. And then there was another one that's like an econo wife or something like that. I cannot remember. But anyway, so wives, handmaids, Martha's, which they're in the household and maybe they may have been married, uh, widowed, but they're beyond like fertility. And then we have aunts, of course, which I don't know what their necessarily difference is between like, how can you be an aunt? I guess you have to be cool. But mm-hmm. Moira, Moira, the BFF to June there, refuses to fit into a niche. And a Fred says that she is like an elevator with open sides who made them dizzy and she was their fantasy probably in particular at the at jezebel's so Mm -hmm. yeah what if you were to just look at moira and and how we see her through a fred slash june's eyes in this tale what do you think she might symbolize if anything i think she essentially symbolizes along with her mother just feminism in it's in, in that in that pure form, you know, the idea that this is what we need to break in some way or another in the before time. She's very free spirited, very open about her with her sexuality. She is the re- she is the rebellious sister in, you know, she's the rebellious Catholic school girl right in in the in the Red Center, right? She's the. She's the one who was going to get into all the trouble and she's the one who's going to run away and they all know it. And then they never break her. But what they are able to do is throw her away with the other quote unquote damaged goods. And that's their only way of having control over her because they put her in a, they put her in a place where she cannot cause trouble. So. Yeah, well, and even then, she's not truly contained. No, no. They they labeled women like her. They would have labeled women like her um, in the in the pre in the before time. Pardon the word, sluts, right, or whores. And they literally turned her into one mm-hmm. by the end. And I only use those words is because that's the pejorative that would have been your, that's the slurs that would have been used. But yeah, they literally are like, well, if you're going to act like one, we're going to make you one. Mm-hmm. So it is, again, it's, it's the power there, but even then she still has power over, you know, but it's in secret too. Right. Mm-hmm. Because nobody knows about Jezebel's. Right. So, yeah. 
And she, yeah, yeah, she can get some information potentially. There seems to be a lot of freedom there in terms of what sort of, well, things you can wear, things you mm-hmm. can eat or imbibe, um, maybe even drugs, I think. I can't remember mm-hmm. if Coke was used in this novel. I might be making mm-hmm. that up. And then, yeah, she's a true, in terms of this universe, gender traitor. And she does mention there's, like, commanders get off on that, which, yeah, isn't that kind of the cliche, of course, men watching women make out. Um, so she does have some some freedom there. But yeah. whether or not she would actually find love, I don't know. But she was, yeah, given that choice or, you know, the colonies. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. She is very, you know, between the two of them, Moira and June, she, I would say, is more similar to June's mother than June is. Because mm-hmm. June kind of fell into maybe, you know, a, a standard, like a housewife mother role. And, yeah, and she idolized, Moira idolized June's mother. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're you're right on about some of that. I never got the, ch- the sense that June was rebelling against her mother by rejecting her mother's values. I think June was just very tired of her mother. You know, yeah. like, so there's like a difference that she was, she, she had ended up with a traditional family because she had the, the daughter and everything. And she was the, the mom, but I didn't see that as a, a complete rebuke of her mother would have been when Gilead started to rise, her turning her mother in, you know, like she still tried to run. She still had a lot of the values that her mother had. She was just tired of her mother's crap because she, I think she found, saw her, thought her mother was a narcissist. Mm or the center of attention and just was very, very tired of hearing about all of it, um, which is natural, I think, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah if, if Moira represents feminism, you can kind of see mm-hmm. how how bigger, how contained it can get and, and stifled mm-hmm. and that maybe negative connotations of it. I think, mm-hmm. or what happened, you know, if people don't like feminism, what they might do to a feminist, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think you're, you're right about yeah. representation. Yeah. There. yeah. Well, well, there was the twisting of the idea of feminism by a number of people, patriarchal types to mean man hating. And that's not what feminism is, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the idea of power and control and all these things. It's like, no, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll yeah, I guess the end, right? Yeah, we're starting to to make the end. So we have kind of two endings. I feel like mm-hmm. the ending proper, and then we have that post. So I'll, I'll ask a couple questions about about the ending overall. So first of all, the ending before the historical notes. Do you find this where June is let off? We don't know where. It's very dubious. Do you find that this is hopeless, hopeful, or just enough hope? Hmm. I think there's there's some hope. Um, I think it's just enough because the amb- there it's an ambiguous oh, yeah. ending, and you want to hope that she got out, and there's evidence to suggest that she did. But at the same time, you hope that beyond that getting out, that she was able to really get out and never have to go back in, um, versus the worry that it wasn't she wasn't successful. I liked that ambiguity because it does make you wonder about like, you know, the kind of be this novel being very realistic of what the hope for us is in that sense. 
I agree with you. I think it's just enough because of that ambiguity. I I wonder if depending on your mindset at the time, whether mm. you would have a different perspective of, oh my gosh, that's that's hopeless. But because of Fred, I think, you know, transitioning probably to June at that point as she crosses the threshold, because she's battling with, you know, this could either be Mayday and they're saving me or I'm going to imprisonment, uh, because she's battling mm-hmm. with that, I think there is that one option of, you know, there's just enough, just enough hope. And, and as I've mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, hours before, that, you know, you kind of wonder, can, can this get worse? What is worse than this? And it was about to be bad because Serena Joy was about to do some stuff. So you can at yeah. least think, well, she's getting out of that house, so maybe, you know? And then, well, if she goes to the colonies, maybe her mom's there. So you can, like, kind of pick apart some things. But, yeah, I think there's just just enough hope for yeah. sure. And then we have the ending ending, which are these historical notes. So just two mm-hmm. parts, I think, of that question. The first part, what does it add to the reading of this novel? And then what does the book's last line mean to you? Which I was about to pull up. Technically, the last line is, are there any questions? But I'll, questions. Go with- <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with this. As all history, I guess you should go back to the as author. all historians. As all know, historians yeah. know, the past is a great darkness and filled with echoes. Voices may reach us from it, but what they say to us is imbued with the obscurity of the matrix out of which they come. And try as we may, we cannot always decipher them precisely in the clearer light of our own day. We are always learning more, just as a people, about our history. And we are always gaining different perspectives on that history because of the way that different voices have been oppressed in telling their stories. A lot of times when it is really obscure, we, we get, you know, we have to fill in the pieces. So if we're thinking that this is, you know, 2195 and they're having this conversation that's a couple hundred years after Gilead came to be, right? So... It's us digging back into the 1800s and 1700s, us digging back into ancient Rome, right? And trying to put those pieces together. Again, it's accuracy. It's that accuracy and honesty thing. It's it's like, you know, the idea that we, we appreciate what we're seeing from the sources that we have, but we'll never truly know what exactly what it was. And it, things will, things will change as we go, as we learn more. I have no idea if I'm right. <laughs> no, no. Um, no, I think you're, you're saying some some good things there. I, I think context matters is, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about in terms of what was, what was going on there. Yeah. I hesitate to say this because mm. this 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 might have a visceral reaction but i think empathy has a lot to do with this and and even this man was saying how at the beginning of his lecture i think he was saying that we don't like judge i think what we do we look at it like from a historical standpoint we're just like offering the details and everything and i think we can so like we're looking at this 
And if I think about it very logically with, with empathy and I'm pulling kind of like what we did with the reader and that sort of empathy where like we look for and try to understand why these people are doing the things they do, even though we do not condone it and we even condemn what they're doing. So if we mm-hmm. look at this, there is an infertility problem and the mores of the day had gone so bad that things like needed to change. And so you're like, that, you know, that, I guess that makes sense. But the way they went about it was the worst way possible. I guess there could be a word. It was a really bad way. So I, I, I wonder if you, you can have any level of empathy. To, it's hard. It's hard. Like this is, that's the thing about empathy is like, it's really hard in certain circumstances. But if you look at it very clinically, you're like, well, I can see what's going on. And I kind of think about Roman, like the Romans, mm-hmm. because Augustus wanted to like clean up the acts like that was one of the purposes of the Aeneid because it has that layer of propaganda mm-hmm. where people were losing touch with their religion um the moors were really bad and so he needed to clean stuff up put some laws in place have this work that's written to show this great guy who's like following his father and what his father's telling him as well as the gods and everything so it's like okay you know was it the best way? No, absolutely not. But uh, we can kind of see see what they're doing there. Is that what's saying that? Probably not. Probably not. I'm, no, I'm I wouldn't my say own, so. Yeah, empathy. That's there. that's what I would say. That's what these sons of Jacob or whoever is is in charge of this claims to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. No. But 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 I think a lot of it, you know, to answer just that part part of of what is this last line saying? I, I think a lot of it because it says about like out of the matrix of you know the time period. Like a lot of it mm-hmm. does matter on the context of mm-hmm. what that's happened because listening to of Fred's retelling of this at any other point in time would not make sense. Um, but you have to think yeah. this is what was going on in Gilead at the time. And so, oh, okay, this is what someone in Gilead at that time is dealing with. It's interesting. I I kind of don't like it, to be honest. I don't like these end notes in my per- – you know, I, I'd like to hear what you have to say or the historical notes. I like that end I, – well, I shouldn't say I like it uh, because it's very unsettling because you don't know what happened mm-hmm. to a Fred. Yeah, so I yeah, guess yeah. in a way it's like, oh, well, she at least made it out somewhere, but who knows what happened to her. But I just don't like someone else's voice being the end of this book. I think it needed to end with – it should have ended with June slash of Fred, in my opinion. Mm. I can see either way because I like these historical notes because I find them fascinating in the sense that like we're kind of, you know, this is what we found. And it's not a framing device. It could have been in a sense, but she decided not to make it a framing device. But yeah, I, I but I do really like it because I just do like the idea of I do like speculating further beyond what happened, you know, what we saw on the page. Yeah. And I like the idea that she did make it out, but there's still the ambiguity of they don't know what happened to her and they're trying to piece together and they're not trying. They are trying to look at this thing objectively. They're not trying to discredit her or credit her for anything. And they are um, they're trying to figure out like, okay, what 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 did happen? What is this? So that I think I did appreciate that as well. But no, I mean, I could go either way. If this didn't exist, I'd be like, okay, and the novel would still be like, what happened? What happened? Yeah. You know, that ambiguity would still be there. This, I think, shed some really cool light on it. And I was like, oh, this is, I just found that part fascinating. But, you know, I'm also the comic book 
geek, you know, it's right up my alley with the sort of, you know, I'm going to explain the history of something to you type of thing from a, from a sci-fi or comic book or something like that. So do you think that professor was wearing an onion on his belt? Which was the style at the time. <laughs> in 2195. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so see, yeah. we know that fashion I, comes around. So, Tom, you wore onions. You don't wear them now, yeah, but I think you will again no. soon. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I wonder, and, and my question was, like, because one of the things they keep bringing up when they're when they're indoctrinating these women, they talk about how future generations are going to have it easy because they're not going to remember what it used to be like. And that's one of the goals of dystopian society, right? Like, you know, breed out like I said, discontent. So like when and how does Gilead fall? Mm-hmm. Because we know it does, right? How long does it exist for? That's what I'm kind of curious about too. Do the, does the Mayday revolution happen? Is it invaded? Does it collapse in on itself? Is there another swing of the pendulum in another direction? I mean, the the country as it is does not exist. It's not they're talking about what it used to be like, right? I mean, that was I I'm assuming that's what we have. Like it's it was an anthropological study of a civilization or a country in this case that no longer exists. So I'm like, what? How how did they finally? get overthrown yeah i mean i feel like it's already fraying at the seams because of jezebel's Mm -hmm. existing so you know just history literally repeats itself and we already Mm -hmm. see even though they wanted to clean up the streets we already see that the streets were never really fully clean because jezebel's Mm -hmm. is just like you know nature it finds a way yeah it's interesting because testaments exists so Mm -hmm. you know that we know that there's a generation that did not know of the past but Mm. i would hope i would hope and i feel like it's the women who are the ones to start to make the break mm-hmm. the ones that are don't like the ceremony that feel really uncomfortable you know being forced into this hole and feel like they have yeah. or, or deserve more of a voice and uh, so I think there needs to at least be some of the old guards still existing in order to potentially train or be insubordinate, I don't know, subversive uh, to the newer generation. I think Mayday and Rebels have something to do it, but I think it probably has some help from the inside out. And I'm hoping that it it's the the women that do it. Yeah, me too. I think that's a thing then. I mean, if that is it. We could yeah. uh, go on and on. I mean, sure, we could keep asking. Honest. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess the final question is: Do you feel like The Handmaid's Tale is required reading? Oh yes, <laughs> I really do. I would put this in a dystopian lit unit. In fact, I'd probably swap out Brave New World because I don't necessarily like Brave New World that much. But but yeah, I, I think because I think this is incredibly relevant and incredibly important and incredibly scary considering today's uh, climate. How do you think you teach young men who are potentially like already airing on the side of toxic masculinity this when they may like believe in some of these values that's tough to be honest with you because i've had i've had different varieties of those types of young men i've had the very just dumb brutish type right the the barbaric sort of you know that sort of of toxic you know like almost like a stereotypical big dumb ox type 
who is just kind of a caveman. As bad as they are, the ones who are worse are the ones who purport themselves to be smart and will use false equivalences to talk or to counterpoint their female classmates and will often talk over them. I had a lot of those in the previous school where I taught and it got very frustrating. And the girl and talking to the young women, they were like, they're like this in every class. And they, they have this sort of, you could see them tune out these boys when they started going on and on. Cause we did have, I remember having a discussion about, you know, um, advertising. We're talking about, you know, uh, standards for advertising, advertising to women and the sexism in advertising for women. And, and then, and then that went on to like body image. Right. Because, um, and then one of the, well, you know, men are blah, 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 blah. And did that whole launch into, it's not just women and discounting women's concern about, the way society treats them and the way society makes them feel that they should have a certain look or a certain feel or a certain, you know, whatever because of bodybuilding magazines or something because of this, the guys. And, and here I am in an environment that is not friendly to me trying to moderate that discussion in a way that is fair so that I don't get accused of being political and I don't, I did as well as I could, but even after that, talking to some of the girls in the class and they're just like, this is every class of them. And they're just like, we just kind of sit back and, and, and ignore it because there's nothing else you can do. And it's really sad when you think about it. So I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to establish norms in the class mm -hmm. and that would be the first thing. And then I'd have to. You know, and we'd have, we'd have, yeah, we'd have to take it slowly. We'd have to, we'd have to kind of honestly take a look at, engage the critical thinking of it and say, what is the author doing? What is she saying? And ultimately, you know, how is that applying and try to approach it from, from an objective standpoint and then maybe tiptoe into the territory of the relevance to today. Or honestly, let the girls shred those boys, you know, mm -hmm. like and just me kind of sit back and just make sure that nothing gets to, you know, make sure that things stay civilized. But if, you know, some of the girls I teach, some of the young women I teach now, I'm like, go <laughs> like I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to let you do it. I'll, I'll step in and we're like, OK, we need to, you know, we need to pull it back a little bit. But yeah, like shred away. <laughs> All right. So, yes. What about you? Do you think it's required? Yes, I would agree. You know, 10 years ago, I probably would have said no. Mm -hmm. But I think now, and especially given the stage of things with women's rights and things, uh, I would say yes. It's becoming, unfortunately, more relevant. So I think we need to you show this just like we have yeah. Jonathan Swift in classrooms. Mm -hmm. I think that this is another form that we can engage our students yeah, well, hey, I want to piss off the governor any way I can. So, anyway. all right. So we do have a Facebook comment on our on our Papillon episode uh, from our Scholastic Book buddy Robert Ward. So I'm going to go ahead and read that out. He might not be our buddy anymore. <laughs> he said, "What did I just hear? I don't even know if I should be listening to this show anymore." <laughs> I was able to watch both films. Boring. And listened to the audiobook and didn't like any of them. I found Papillon to be so ludicrous that I'm legitimately angered by the idea that this story could be considered autobiographical for anyone. 
Papillons unravering morality, bravery, and intelligence may fool others, but I saw this as nothing but laughable. It's hilarious how beloved Papi was able to become to every single person he comes across and gain their respect, whether the, they be a native tribe, inmates, or the prison staff and their wives. I would have much preferred the Count of Monte Cristo than this. Papi is so wonderful and always survived with his quote friends didn't because he was legitimately the hero of his own story he had to be oh so amazing had i started this fiction sooner i would have taken far more breaks as i really gritted my teeth so i wouldn't metaphorically throw the book across the room it's like it's like uh silver linings playbook <laughs> i mean for example the fantasy of gaining the trust of a native tribe and getting a beautiful native girl to fall in love with him was bad enough but for her to then offer up her 12 year old sister as a way to further keep him on the island and eventually making her his wife too still has me upset there are a couple of points in there where i, I where he i agree with him about him kind of being the hero of his own story in a way that was a little too self-aggrandizing and i don't think i really brought that up when we were talking about the novel any response you have i don't know no i mean as as you're aware i mean i really liked it so i'm afraid i'm on the other side of of Robert at this point in time. And, and, you know, we did talk about that the 12 year, I mean, I brought it up. I wasn't about to shy away from the fact um, that this was going on with that child. So I, I understand your points. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked it the most of the three of us Mm -hmm. and yeah, I don't know. I just enjoyed it. So I guess it's time. Oh, I think so. Episode 75. Whoa. The quarter quell. Yeah. The quarter quell. So, Stella. Uh-oh. Stella. Sir? Well, is it? So, it's February. Is it a romance? Um, no. Oh, I my gosh. A romance, you Stella. take February and you're not even topically rolling. I don't know. I mean, we have to see that. I guess there is some sort of romance, in a sense, in here, Stella. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you figure out what Well, I was like, why does he keep repeating my I name? But that one got me. That one, that is not a romance. How <sighs> dare you, sir? How uh, dare you? I'm going to brush up on my Brando impression. Uh-uh-uh. We're going to be reading A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Okay. I mean, he is my favorite playwright, but that is not the most uplifting of plays. <sighs> I figured 75th episode, let's go back to a work of literature that was referenced in the promo for the show. Was it? Do you have Brando screaming out? Yes. As a sound because clip? Okay. You are, because you're. Oh, the, the, you do the do promo, that, don't you? Rambling, you're rambling in, about Jane Eyre. <laughs> and I say Stella, Stella, Stella. And I finally yeah. dropped the Brando clip in there. So, okay. hey, Stella, we're talking streetcar. Oh, my gosh. Do you know the context of why he's yelling Stella? Probably not. Okay. No, actually, I've never. I'm, I'm actually. I Because I'm, I'm always astounded because people do that. They re they I mean obviously just my name and I just think like you don't even know you no, only no, know the just, scene but you don't know why he's doing yeah, that so it's, I, it's, I can't wait to go over why he's screaming her name it's easily the most famous scene in in, yeah. in the entire movie For and then there's there's a there's a Seinfeld episode where Elaine they're in Florida and she's I think she's on muscle relaxers and took too many and they go to some sort of reception or whatever in, in Del Boca Vista and 
one of the Seinfelds introduces um, Elaine to the, and Jerry to uh, like their aunt Stella or friend Stella, and she just goes Stella. <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus doing it is hilarious. So, oh, and it recently no, I, happened. I promise not to make too many of the jokes. Oh, okay, I'm yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll get frequently. I've been rewatching Gilmore Girls, and Lorelai mm. has actually done it twice. One was she's trying to find a chick in the house, and I forgot about that one. But there's another one where she's like throwing pebbles at um, Luke Danes's window, and she's like, "Luke, Luke, Stella." So yeah, I'm like, I, "Oh my gosh, it's everywhere." I know you're not a huge Simpsons fan, but there is an episode. It's an early it's one of the first five seasons where Marge has, plays the role of Stella. No, she plays Blanche. I think she plays Blanche in uh, a pro- musical production of A Streetcar Named Desire called O Streetcar. And Ned Flanders plays Stanley. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and there's a musical number. <laughs> Well, so, you can always send yeah, so, it my way. Perhaps I'll watch I, it. I will. I will. I'll try to send you at least one of the YouTube clips because it is it is pretty funny. Yeah. So, so yeah. So come back. And 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 it's it's ten forty at night, and I'm 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 getting punchy. So <laughs> he's always punchy, folks. Uh, anyway, Streetcar Named Desire episode seventy five. See us in about a month for that. As always, don't forget to send us some feedback and things. Um, What's your thought on the Handmaid's Tale on the Testaments? By then, maybe we'll have a short conversation about what I thought of that one too, in our feedback section, uh, because I'll probably be finished by that with it by then anyway. So until then, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if you've gotten anything out of this episode, know that a Fred, really any woman, is. Just like Odysseus, Odysseus trying to figure out which is the best route. Should I go by the skill? Should I go by the Caribbean? I mean, should I be handmaiden? Should I go the colonies? So there's that classical reference that I forgot to make, but now I'm There you go. There you go. Goodbye. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Just one of your many toys You don't own me Don't say I can't go with other boys And don't tell me what to do Don't tell me what to say And please, when I go out with you Don't put me on display Cause you don't own me
Cause I'd never stay